It is August 1st, and this is Studio 2. Welcome. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Shirley Min, in for Avi Wolfman Aaron. Welcome, Shirley. I'm excited to work with you today. I'm happy to be back. Well, today on the show, we have some exciting things to talk about, Mm -hmm. really interesting stuff. We're talking about the rise in plastic surgery. Get this, procedures are up by over 50% in the last two years. And a lot of younger people are kind of jumping on the bandwagon here. They're getting lip fillers, liposuction, even Botox. Are we getting too comfortable with plastic surgery? What do you think? Email us at studio2 at whyy.org. Looking forward to that conversation, which is coming up in just a few minutes. But we're also going to get the rundown on the Biden administration's student loan repayment plan with Washington Post reporter Danielle Douglas-Gabriel and some history later this hour about the country's first quarantine hospital built at the dawn of the 1800s to serve patients in Philadelphia. But first, Shirley... We're going to dig into the news today. (laughs) Yeah, so this is a story that had us talking a good bit uh, this morning about Upper Darby's top parking official. Yes. Charged with theft. Yeah, for allegedly stealing coins Mm -hmm. from street meters. So her name is Sakella Coles, Mm -hmm. who became parking director for Upper Darby in 2020. She is accused of spending meter money on dinners, parties, and gifts. And we're not talking... About a handful of quarters. Investigators say that Coles allegedly took over $4,000 from newly installed meters, which were easy, easier to collect the coins from. And she used her assistant to take the money to deposit it in her personal bank account. Now, the Delco District Attorney Jack Stolsteimer says Coles admitted to some of these charges, which were bigger than the theft. She confessed she also deleted parking tickets issued to her family members during her years in the position. And um, another big part of this, and this is the thing, Shirley, you and I were like, oh, uh-huh. she um, 18,000 parking tickets were never processed. Mm-hmm. And so people were able to not pay their parking tickets yeah. for a couple of years. The the, dark, the bureau lost about a million dollars. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how she got caught. So yeah. you have people trying to contest these tickets in court. And the court's like, what tickets? <laughs> we have no record of it. Leads to an audit. And here we are. Um, so Coles is on administrative leave and mm-hmm. facing three felony counts. Yeah. Former for four thousand dollars. I know. Yeah. A former council member up with Darby. And it's just like four thousand dollars, man. Yeah. Like she's 45. Now yeah. what? Anyway, that's a, this is a talker today. For sure. The next story, um, Governor Shapiro, he's promoting his new four hundred million dollar infrastructure job training program. That's a mouthful. It's called the Commonwealth Workforce Transformation Project. And the governor is saying that this will create 10,000 new skilled jobs for Mm -hmm. Pennsylvania projects. Now, Pennsylvania is in line to get $19 billion over the next few years for infrastructure projects, which is incredible. But the question now is, okay, do we have enough workers to get this done? Yeah. and, And the cool thing about this program is that companies will get about up to $40,000 per worker and reimbursed for training costs, mm-hmm. which can include childcare, which means you can get your kids taken care of while you go back to school. So also important. pay for uniform certification and equipment costs. And, you know, this is an opportunity for your cousins and all those folks who say they've been looking to transition into new careers to get fully trained and and go to work for years to come. Yeah, this is essential work. Road and bridge construction, lead pipe replacement, internet, all of that. 
Okay, uh, next up, Black Star Film Black Fest. Black Star Film Fest, returning to Philadelphia for the 12th time. And a Philadelphia-based artist is among the directors to showcase their new work. Of course, this festival starts August 2nd. It ends on the 6th. It's an annual festival. It highlights Black, Brown, and Indigenous artists. And over 90 films will represent over 30 That's incredible. countries. Right? And this, the organization's 2024 Philadelphia Filmmaker Lab has a is a Black Star program where local filmmakers attend a year-long program to create short films about the city. And it's just a really cool program. Mm-hmm. And, and and we have a Philly person. Yeah, Philly-based artist. He's among, they are among the directors to showcase their new work. So this is Imran Siddiqui's movie called The Difference Between Us. That movie is going to premiere on August 5th. And um, now Imran is an Illinois native, but now a Philly resident. Yay. So, <laughs> yay. Philly over everybody. <laughs> yeah. And the story is interesting because it, it it's talks about or features an undocumented Bangladeshi Mm. immigrant in Philly who starts to fall for a roommate that she's never met. So it's kind of an interesting premise, um, but I just love the whole concept of the Black Star Film Fest. It just is the exposure, the -hmm. variety of subject matters, the stories. You just go in and you don't know what you're going to get, but it's it's pretty all good. It's all good. And I think we have another minute to talk about Temple dropping their new logo <laughs> and it just was unveiled today it's being called bold fierce majestic and sleek and it was revealed on x or twitter um yeah. your reaction i don't want to be a downer okay. <laughs> and i'm not a temple Since alum let me say this apologetically i love Charlie, the tea love the tea but i don't <laughs> like the new owl it is sleek but it looks like a transformer you kept it 100% real, Shirley, and that's why we love you. Um, I will say it doesn't look owly. And I just made that word up yeah. to all my folks. You can email me about the word. Yes, owly. It doesn't look owly enough. Mm-hmm. You know, it looks like it could be any bird. And it does have that transformer breastplate plate look. Yeah. And um, Twitter or X was, was reacting, and one person said, Please refund my tuition for this. <laughs> Let us know what you think. You can tweet at us at, at WHRY. Use the hashtag Studio2. Do you agree with Shirley? Is, is it Transformer-like? I mean, here's my thing, too. So I understand the school's athletic director said they needed a modern logo. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a Division One school. Hating on the 90s. Updating. But he said they need a modern logo because, quote, we're not in the 90s anymore. I liked the 90s. I love the 90s. <laughs> that was an incredible decade. I love the what 90s. What was wrong with the 90s? But the comments are hilarious. So let us know what you think. Tweet Hashtag, at us. Yeah. Studio Hashtag two. Studio 2. And so, and, you know, speaking of schools, I'm still paying, you know, some of my student loans from graduate school. And so... There's could be some relief for mm-hmm. folks. The Biden administration's new income driven student loan repayment plan is open for enrollment beginning in this month, August, with federal student loan repayments starting again this October. They were put on hold during the mm-hmm. pandemic. Now the Biden administration is launching SAVE. It stands for Saving on a Valuable Education. 
It's this new plan. It comes a month after the Supreme Court struck down Biden's loan forgiveness program, and it's supposed to significantly reduce low-income borrowers' monthly payments. And here to tell us more about how SAVE works and who is eligible is the Washington Post higher education reporter, Danielle Douglas. Gabriel, welcome to Studio Two, Danielle. Welcome to Studio Two, Danielle. Happy to have you. Thanks for having me. So, Danielle, can you lay out how this new save repayment plan is going to work? I know it's based on income, but can you lay out the details for us here? Sure. So this is a revised version of an existing plan, and there's actually several income-based plans that have existed since the Clinton administration. But this one essentially uh, allows you to save more of your income uh, other than other plans. What it does is increase the threshold that uh, of your income that's saved before it's calculated into the plan for that would give your monthly payments. So instead of uh, your income being exempted from 150% above the poverty line, it's now at 225% above the poverty line. What that means is if you're a single borrower earning say like $32,000 or less, uh, or a family of four earning $67,000 or less, you may have to pay nothing a month towards your loans until your income increases under this plan. That's a pretty vast difference than the existing plans. And for the average borrower, they may save at least $1,000 a year on this new save plan. I, I got to ask you how this will works. I mean, because we're used to having interest tick up mm -hmm. every single month. And so by not paying, you end up putting yourself on a hamster wheel. Um, how will there be a shift? I understand there is going to be a shift in how interest is calculated as well. Sure. So if you make your monthly payment, your loan balance won't grow, grow due to unpaid interest. Now, a lot of us may see that, especially the capitalized interest piece, where if you move from one repayment plan to another repayment plan, whatever interest accrued from the plan that you're moving from gets tacked onto the balance so that you're paying interest on top of interest, which makes a lot of people's overall um, obligation grow quite a lot. This plan uh, pretty much saves you from that. And that's that's huge for a lot of people, especially people who have grad loans, who, who which the interest on those mm -hmm. loans are much higher than undergrad loans. So that's a big difference. If your if your monthly payment is zero dollars, though, let's say that you hit that threshold and you're only you're not paying anything a month. How are you then cutting down on your student loans? So here's the, the, the big part, which is kind of controversial for some folks. Now, if you are a borrower who just has under $12,000 for undergraduate loans, you are only paying 5% of your discretionary income. If you qualify for that zero and you stay at that zero for those entire 10 years, then whatever your balance is after that gets forgiven. So it is entirely oh. possible for you never to have to make a payment on your loans if your income doesn't rise above a certain threshold. Uh, that is huge for a lot of borrowers who have struggled. I mean, what we know about people who default on their loans is oftentimes they owe less than $10,000 on their loans. These are people who more often than not did not graduate, so they didn't get the benefit of the college degree to help them in the labor force. And so this really kind of addresses that population mm -hmm. by ensuring that they will never have unaffordable loans. Got to ask you, I mean, that was the big issue with the loan forgiveness plan was that a lot of folks felt like, taxpayers would be subsidizing um, the loans uh, uh, of borrowers. Is 
will some borrowers have taxpayer subsidizing their unpaid loans? I mean, certainly the people who certainly don't have to pay, who only pay like a quarter of what they owe or nothing at all, there's certainly going to be folks who will look at that and say, how is this any different than the plan that you were, uh, that the Supreme Court struck down? And I think we're, we're going to see some pushback on this plan as it goes forward. I would not be surprised if there were lawsuits coming mm. in the works. Uh, certainly, this is very different than that, the plan that was struck down by the Supreme Court because it wasn't done through executive order. There was a negotiated rulemaking process that put this plan into place. And it, certainly the Department of, of Education has the authority to do it. But I think the amount of money that could the federal government may forego as a result of this plan is pretty significant. I think the Penn Wharton model, which looked at this, said something like $350 billion or so over mm -hmm. 10 years. That's pretty significant. So the, the higher loan amounts we've kind of found were current. Like so, they weren't in default. The borrowers were not, um, but that the smaller loans were the ones that were people were having a harder time paying up. Um, and you kind of talked on that, but can you explain a little bit more about this discrepancy here? Well, for a lot of people who have kind of those big loans, those six-figure loans that you hear a lot about, they went to graduate school. And if they got a graduate degree, they have higher earning potential in the market. So they're able to at least keep current with their loans. I'm not saying that that means that it's it's easy or it's manageable, um, but it is it's certainly different than those who went to college, maybe did a year or two, never completed, but took loans out during that time and maybe working a low income job and their earnings certainly are not high enough to be able to repay those loans. And so that's the population of people you more, more often than not see fall behind on their payments and become defaulted on their loans. Yeah. And we have about a little less than a minute. Got to ask you. So now people can sign up. What's the rollout going to look like uh, in the next month or so? Next couple of certainly. months, should I ask? Yeah. So I will say certainly people can sign up and that part's great. The interest capitalization bid will also take effect this year. But the really important piece of it, which is the not having to pay more than 5% of your discretionary earnings or 10%. Uh, if you just have graduate loans or there's like a weighted average between five and 10, if you have both, that piece doesn't kick in until 2024. So wow. I, I want borrowers to to be aware of that. So when they see their loan payment, like, hey, how come this isn't, you know, less than than I was I, than I thought it would have been that part of it doesn't kick in until next year. But you yeah. can enroll now. Plus, if you're already in a repay yep. plan, then you are already going to be automatically. Enrolled. All right. So that's good. Well, awesome. Well, that was the Washington Post higher ed reporter, Danielle Douglas Gabriel. Thanks for being on Studio Two. Thank you, guys. All right. Coming up next, the plastic surgery boom. Email your thoughts to Studio Two at WHYY.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Shirley Min. 
Cherry, do you know anyone who's had plastic surgery? I know a few people. And recently I watched a woman get some fat sucked out of her thigh on Instagram. She was getting live. Yeah, live (laughs) on Instagram. So there you go. I know her kind (laughs) of. Well, it turns out that the pandemic and especially video calls have made us very aware of our appearances. Also, popular mm-hmm. media plays a significant role when it comes to, you know, getting things done. Yeah, the Kardashians, the Real Housewives, and many more go viral on TikTok, Instagram, and all these apps with their nose jobs and BBLs. Mm-hmm. And that is why we thought we needed to learn more about this rise in plastic surgery, the age at which people start getting treatments, and the drive behind it all. Uh, David B. Sarwer is with us today. He is the Associate Dean at the College of Public Health at Temple University and has studied the connection or the correlation between popular media and plastic surgery for decades. David, welcome to Studio Two. Thank you both for having me. So we want to hear from you also, our listeners. Have you had anything done? What was your experience? How did you feel before and after your procedure? Our email, as usual, studio2 at org. So, um, David, I got to ask you, the numbers show a sharp increase in the number of people willing to undergo these cosmetic procedures. Explain what did the world of cosmetic surgery look like, say, 10, 15 years ago compared to what it looks like today? So if we go back a little bit further, it gets really interesting because Mm. historically, when we talked about cosmetic procedures, we were talking about the traditional surgical procedures like liposuction and rhinoplasty. About 20 years ago is when we saw this growth of these minimally invasive, invasive, injectable procedures that you both were talking about. And those have really now represent the vast majority of procedures performed. So if The American Society of Plastic Surgeons tell us that just over 15 million people had a single cosmetic procedure done last year. Over 80% of those are those minimally invasive injectable procedures as opposed to the traditional surgical procedures. So that's really been the major change in the landscape over the last 20 years. The the injectable minimally invasive, why is that so hard to say? Procedures are what, for example? Things like Botox, things like fillers, um, Mm -hmm. lip augmentation, and so forth. So most of these are focused on the face and they're designed um, to push back the the hands of time Mm -hmm. for people who are concerned that they're looking older than they feel or than they chronologically are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and to Cherry's point, you know, her watching this liposuction mm-hmm. procedure on an Instagram Live, it, it used to be people were really discreet about procedures they hush, had. Hush, Completely hush-hush. And now you come to this where people are so open about it. What's going on with this shift? Yeah, it's it's definitely been a 180 for many people. When I started working in the field 25 years ago, a lot of people kept their experiences very, very private. And now I think because of things like social media, like reality TV, which I do think influences behavior, um, and I think in some cases, as you both mentioned, the when the stars of these shows undergo procedures, the procedures are almost like co-stars. The way they talk about them, the way they talk about their experiences, the way people respond to the changes in the way that they look. Um, Now we have a generation of people who are proud of the work that they have done. They are very comfortable sharing it with the world. In some cases, they'll uh, give a surgeon a permission to share the procedure itself, although that's very controversial. There was actually a surgeon in the state of Ohio who just lost her license last week uh, because she was Instagramming from the operating room. 
um, and kind of using using that as an opportunity to engage with potential patients. And and you know the board of medicine in the state of Ohio said this crosses a line. Yeah, can we talk about the American psyche a bit? Because when I was growing up, the only people you would see on television getting plastic surgery that you knew about were like famous people or people who were in the public eye. Now it's like everybody. Yeah. And so what has been psychologically has shifted in our minds to where we feel like we need to do some work or that it's necessary. Well, if we look throughout recorded time, there's always been an interest in enhancing the way that we look. So this is this idea of what can we do to represent ourselves more positively to the world is not unique. It's not something that's just popped up in the last several decades. I think what's really happened is, one, the technology, in particular these minimally invasive procedures, have made the procedures seem less dangerous. They seem more safe. They're more financially affordable. So people look at them and say, this is something I can do, as opposed to maybe sa- having to save five to $15,000 for a surgical procedure. Um, but I also think that um, we've become much more comfortable modifying our bodies in a way that we haven't before. I think another analogy here is things like tattoos and piercings. Um, mm-hmm. It used to be that tattoos were only reserved for people who were in the military, people who had spent time in prison. We all probably know somebody now who has an arm full of tattoos, mm-hmm. tattoos all over their bodies, and it's very much more commonplace. And we don't we don't blink as much at those at individuals who are representing themselves that way, the way that we would have 20 years ago. And just to be clear, all these procedures are not generally covered by insurance. I mean, these are out-of-pocket expenses. Almost exclusively. So unless the, the treating physician can come up with a justification for why a cosmetic procedure actually has a functional element to it, um, no, they're not covered. I mean, most insurance plans are pretty explicit saying that we do not cover a cosmetic or an aesthetic procedure. Probably the best example would be something like drooping eyelids, that if your eyelids are actually drooping low enough that it's impacting your field of vision, an insurance company might pay for a blepharoplasty. They might pay for a rhinoplasty or a nose job if you're having trouble breathing. But for the minimally invasive procedures, unless you're getting Botox for headaches, it's not going to be covered for injections in the face. Yeah, and if you are just tuning in, we're talking about the rise in cosmetic procedures and surgeries with David B. Sarwer, Associate Dean at the College of Public Health at Temple University. Have you gotten plastic surgery, friends, or found it appealing? Have you considered it? Would you consider it? Email us at studio2 at whyy.org. We want to bring in uh, another guest into the conversation, uh, Sierra Starks. Um, We are seeing more people more diversity in people who are demanding to get plastic surgery. But the big question is, what is the beauty standard? We have journalist and Allure Magazine contributor Sierra Starks with us. Hello, Sierra. Welcome to Studio Two. Hi, thank you for having me. And so you've been listening a little bit to our conversation with David uh, about this now uptick and shift in bringing in uh, more people wanting cosmetic procedures. But and they want to look better and enhance their looks, but what standard is the standard now? 
That's a very good question. Um, again, like more black and brown people than ever are getting cosmetic procedures. And I think we can attribute that to a number of things. Um, beauty standards are evolving. You know, historically, plastic surgery, aesthetic medicine has been viewed through a Eurocentric lens. And what's happening today is the nose job of the 90s and 2000s is no longer the nose job of today, right? Filler in the lips is huge. People want fuller lips now, and that hasn't always been the case. Um, and so I do think that those standards are evolving where people are, you know, black and brown people are coming into um, an aesthetic medicine provider and saying, you know, this is what I want, as opposed to, you know, um, a, a provider saying, you know, this is the nose job that you need right now. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is there more diversity among providers now, plastic surgeons themselves, where, you know, they can offer different options or different approaches to beauty? I do think that there is still work to be done in diversifying, you know, how many black and brown plastic surgeons there are. Um, but I do think like as we're seeing more black and brown people getting cosmetic procedures, um, they're coming to providers again with what they want. And so that puts a little bit of pressure on the industry to then say, you know, I, I need to learn how to do a mini BBL or a BBL or, you know, these are things that I need to learn now because patients themselves are asking for them. Yeah. And David, I want you to respond to that because, um, you know, I was reading uh, as we were doing our research for this conversation, you know, people used to come in and say, hey, do you know, doc, I need some work. I don't I don't know what to do now. You know, folks, especially younger folks, they're coming in knowing exactly what they want. How are people so knowledgeable now about these procedures? And, and, and could you talk about the psychology of going in almost like with a roadmap for your doctor. Yeah, and, and this has been an issue that the field has struggled with for years. As a, as a psychologist who has worked with plastic surgeons and dermatologists, I've, I've seen this firsthand. The, the classic example used to be, I would bring in a picture of my favorite celebrity and say, I want Jennifer Aniston's nose, or I want this person's lips. Um, now it is much more uh, nuanced even still, where people are doing their own homework, they're hearing about the different options and they're going to surgeons and they're saying, I'm very interested in this procedure and I want you to do it this way. And this becomes very, a very slippery slope between meeting the patient where she may be at in terms of what she wants versus is a little bit of reading on Google. Yeah. You know, at what point does that not is not the equivalent mm -hmm. of years of medical training and residency and so forth. And so I do think there, there can be a point of tension there between patients and providers. And then providers are then challenged to have an informed conversation with the patient saying, I appreciate you want this procedure done this way. Here's the better way to do it. Here's really what you're looking for. And I recommend that we do this instead. Mm. Sierra, you know, younger people we are hearing are jumping on this prejuvenation movement, you know, with the fillers mm. and the Botox. And I'm just wondering, you know, are we seeing a trend among black and brown younger women who are kind of hopping on this prejuvenation movement as well? Oh, absolutely. Right. Cosmetic procedures are now becoming more, I, I call it brunch conversation, right? I have Botox at this time, so we can have brunch at this time. Wow. <laughs> uh, and I think, <laughs> oh my I goodness. think that's because social media, right, has made the thought of cosmetic surgery more accessible. 
Um, and then I also think of like the housewives, right, that we all watch. Um, so Dr. Wendy from Real Housewives of Potomac, I remember she had like a whole dinner party to showcase the results of her cosmetic procedures. And I think that does wonders in in making things like non-invasive procedures, invasive procedures more accessible, right? Where um, before we were seeing it through a different lens, right? Where I'm watching someone on TV. Now I'm able to like DM different medical providers or dermatologists, things like that. So I think, yes, absolutely. And I would just jump in here. I, yeah. I completely agree. And there is some evidence to suggest exactly that, that while many people may watch some of these reality shows as a guilty pleasure, mm-hmm. it is influencing behavior that people who watch these shows read women's fashion magazines that often report mm-hmm. on these very issues are the ones who are have more positive attitudes towards surgery and say they're more likely to get these procedures done in the future. Mm-hmm. I also want to talk about this whole beauty standard thing because we're watching The Housewives and I actually watched the Real Housewives of Atlanta, and they, <laughs> and uh, Cynthia Bailey was talking about her her breast augmentation and how it's post ten years and it still look good. And I was like, wow. Um, and and but when we go on the internet now and we go on social media, most people are using filters, mm-hmm. and you rarely see people look like they actually look. And I want to talk about the trend there because. If you don't see real faces um, and then you go into a doctor and you say, you know, this is how I look and you're comparing to non real or touched up faces or filtered faces. Can you talk about the psychology of that? And then, of course, Sierra, I want to get your reaction to that. question. Yeah, I think it's it's not just even the filtering. It's also the angle at which selfies are often taken. There's Mm -hmm. some evidence that say that if we take a selfie and we're within, you know, we're holding it up and we're taking a picture of ourselves, it actually can give you a distorted sense of what your nose looks like from straight ahead. And so patients will come in and they'll say, I think my nose is too wide. And the surgeon may say, actually, that may be an artifact of you taking selfies and looking at them. It's, it's perceptually distorting what you're seeing. The person I really like to think about in this space is Jamie Lee Curtis. Mm-hmm. Um, she, about 20 years ago, very bravely uh, did a picture of herself in a fashion magazine both before and after she was made up for a photo shoot. And at the time, I think she was in her mid-40s, and she looked like a woman in her 40s with all the imperfections and changes in age that come along with it. And then they documented the tens of thousands of dollars it took to make her look like Jamie Lee Curtis, a celebrity. And she, I think, has always been candid about the fact that, um, you know, it takes work to make yeah. myself look like the celebrity that I am. And and I think she's actually one of the, the great voices of reason in all of this in terms of saying the image that you see on the screen, the image that you see in the magazine is not who I am on a Tuesday afternoon. Yeah. I mean, that said, though, we know that. And mm-hmm. yet plastic surgery is still on the rise right. because it's infiltrated our way of thinking. Like we need to look a certain way. We need to, um, you know, fit this particular mold. Mm-hmm. But at a certain point, doesn't everyone just start looking the same I mean, I feel like we're losing all of our individuality. Sierra, what do you what do you think? I don't think so. I think that, you know, we're finding that more black and brown women want to preserve what are called like their ethnic features. Right. Mm. Um, I don't. Yeah, I don't think that, you know, the again, the nose job of the 90s and 2000s is no longer the nose job of today. Right. Like and and I think about um, the the slim thick trend right mm-hmm. um when we're talking about you know social media not 
doing us any favors in that in that arena, I think the constant comparisons, right, they don't help. Um, and the slim thick trend, which is the cinched waist, you know, flat stomach, larger butt, hips and thighs, um, it's it's led some black women to be dissatisfied in their own skin um, and, and feel like they don't have like this, this figure that social media is saying that they should have. Um, and so I think it takes a lot of inner right inner mm. talks and and self-realization right because we all have mirrors we all look at, you look at them and look in them i think but because plastic surgery itself is a very um privileged concept right of having to have the money and the means to, mm -hmm. to go to these world-class surgeons um it's really going to take a lot of us um finding that inner peace and inner beauty with what we look like. But again, um, yeah. we are finding that that a lot of black and brown women are wanting to preserve um, some of the thickness that they have. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you're just tuning in, uh, we're talking about the rise in cosmetic surgery and procedures. Um, we have with us Sierra Starks, who is a journalist and um, contributor to Allure magazine. We also have um, David Sarwer, Associate Dean at the College of Public Health at Temple University. T do you have comments? Do you Have you had plastic surgery? Do you think social media has changed our own perceptions of ourselves? Email us at studio2 at whyy.org. I wanted to piggyback on what Sierra was talking about, um, about, you know, this being something that was sort of elite um, and it's becoming more accessible in, in some cases we have a lot of people doing medical tourism mm -hmm. where they're traveling to other countries to get work done because of prices uh david your thoughts on that and some people are putting their lives at risk a absolutely and i i want to go back to the thin thick example which is a phrase that i've never said before and never would have imagined i would have said on the radio um but what what sierra is actually getting at in some cases are people who are looking at these bbl procedures the mm -hmm. brazilian butt lift um, these can be very dangerous procedures. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of surgeons, particularly concentrated in South Florida, who um, have a series of, of patients behind them who have either been profoundly deformed mm -hmm. um, or have died from these procedures. And I was actually in Miami driving back from a meeting to the airport, and I was struck by the fact that in some cases there are little stores in strip malls that are advertising these procedures. And what I think becomes an issue of concern with these procedures is how far do we drift away from traditional medicine? Yeah. You know, physicians, you know, there are many plastic surgeons who I've had the pleasure of working with over the course of my career who are board certified and so forth. But for many physicians, they can go and get trained in a cosmetic procedure in a short period of time they're not board certified as a plastic surgeon or a dermatologist, but it's a way to generate revenue for their practices in a challenging economic environment for them. And as a patient, you may not necessarily know whether or not, unless you do the homework, whether or not your surgeon is board certified and is qualified to do the procedures that you're interested in. So I guess... For so long, I guess I've told myself that social media has been so bad for beauty standards. You know, it's really crippled women. It's made us feel um, bad about ourselves unless we can get these things. I mean, do you, is there an upside to how social, is there an upside to social media in any way when it comes to beauty standards? Or is it all largely negative? The evidence tells us, unfortunately, it's largely negative. 
and that the more time that we spend on social media and the more time we look at images of of physical beauty, the less good we feel about our own appearance. So we'll go back to the Jamie Lee Curtis example I gave a few moments ago. If we're comparing ourselves to the made-up Jamie Lee Curtis wearing a $3,500 dress and heels and goes through three hours of makeup, we look at her, a woman may look at her and say, well, I don't look like that, so I need to go get something done. I need to do something. But they don't realize all of the work that went on behind the scenes Mm -hmm. to create that image, let alone the filters and the photoshops and so forth. And we've made the case in some of our work that these images are now so ubiquitous, so common, that we're bombarded by them. And so even though we may be mindlessly scrolling through social media, we see these images and it has an effect of how we perceive others, but how we feel about ourselves as well. Yeah. And Sierra, I want you to comment on this because do you think this whole accessibility and this increase in the amount of people getting plastic surgery and procedures, will it shift beauty standards to the point where people don't even like the way that they look naturally. As an avid consumer of social media, I can say that there's there's good and bad. Yeah. Um, I think the good here, though, is that we are able to push back against the idea that there's a single standard of beauty, mm. for sure, right? I think that we've, we've come light years about that. And not just that, but there's... Um, the industry has to resist that there is a single black standard of beauty, right? Like there's this narrow idea of what a pretty black girl is. Uh, and I think it's time we stop that and let that narrative go. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for social media, that's been a place where I see, you know, black women of all shapes and sizes and colors. Um, and, and it's something to be celebrated. And, um, so I again I think it's good and bad but I am you know solely focusing on the good because you know years ago this wouldn't be the case right where you know a black woman could feel comfortable in her skin hop on YouTube hop yeah. on TikTok right uh, and and now she does and that's great. Yeah. I have I have to say I have more and more people I know personally who are willing to get these procedures when maybe 15 years ago that was not the case mm-hmm. and so that it, it is sort of empowering. And so, okay, I didn't know David, Sierra was going to have a little yeah, other thing. Yeah, I think uh, Sierra had to go there. Thank you so much, Sierra, for your time. Um, David, we're going to wrap up, and I want you to add, what's the future look like? Will we see more and more people? Will this just become a, a part of our beauty? Yeah. And when is enough enough, I guess, is what I also want to add on to that. Um, you know, I remember in, in thinking about this interview, I, I will look back at some of the earliest papers I wrote on this back in the late 1990s when I first started doing this work, when 2.5 million Americans were having these things done. And if you would have told me that we would have gotten to 17 million and we would have seen this explosion of minimally invasive treatments and we'd be talking about things like face transplants, mm. I didn't see that coming. Uh, there's no evidence that I see that this is going to slow down. And in fact, I think what we very well may see is a greater increase in accessibility. At the same time, the world has changed post-pandemic. You know, as we talked a little bit about, Zoom and webinars has influenced this. And as we kind of find wherever the new normal is going to be, I think it'll be very interesting to see where we all land with respect to cosmetic procedures. All right. And we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much to you, David B. Sauer. Associate Dean at the College of Public Health at Temple University. Thank you for being on Studio 2. My pleasure. And you also heard from Sierra Starks, journalist and contributor at Allure Magazine. 
Um, we're going to have to switch gears a little bit because we have some breaking news. Lieutenant Governor Sheila Oliver has died at the age of 71. The announcement came just a few moments ago via a statement from New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy and Oliver's family. She was admitted to the hospital yesterday for an undisclosed medical issue. She had been serving as acting governor this week while Murphy was out of state, and she has served as the state's lieutenant governor since 2018. In 2010, Oliver became the first African-American woman to serve as speaker of the New Jersey State Assembly. There are no other details at this time. Oliver's family is requesting privacy during this difficult time, Mm. and we want to extend our sympathies to them. Obviously, WHYY will continue covering this and provide the information to you uh, when it becomes available. Yeah, we'll be right back with more Studio 2 after this. Welcome back to Studio 2. I'm Shirley Min. And I'm Cherry Gregg. In 2006, Penn history professor David Barnes came across a crumbling old property along the Delaware River, just south of Philadelphia. It's right next to the airport. It's right next to I-95. And just completely out of time, there's this, you know, late 18th century estate. And I just couldn't get it out of my head. Barnes was looking at the Lazaretto, built at the dawn of the 1800s. It is the oldest surviving quarantine station in the Western Hemisphere. Now, quarantine back then didn't mean exactly what it means today, but the practice was controversial and it did create conflicts around commerce, disease and science. Sound familiar? Well, David Barnes wrote a new book about this groundbreaking hospital. It's called Lazaretto, How Philadelphia Used an Unpopular Quarantine Based on Disputed Science to Accommodate Immigrants and Prevent Epidemics. Recently, Barnes spoke with Studio 2 co-host Avi wolfman Aaron. Summer 1793, 1798. What does Philadelphia look and sound like? Philadelphia in the 1790s was the nation's capital. It was the nation's largest city. It was the nation's busiest seaport, city of about 50 to 60,000 people crowded into a space that you could walk across in 15, 20 minutes. The arrival of yellow fever was intensely traumatic. It was a kind of cataclysm that hit this very important bustling, growing city. Beginning in late July, people started dropping like flies. It was terrifying. Yellow fever is a dramatic and horrifying disease. Um, It strikes relatively quickly. You could be in perfect health one day and dead within uh, less than a week. The College of Physicians came out with a list of emergency recommendations, one of which was to stop ringing the church bells. Every time somebody died, the church bells would ring to commemorate the passing of a, of a human being, of a soul. And the tolling of the bells became so frequent that it was demoralizing and terrifying. 
for the inhabitants and the College of Physicians said, finally, enough, stop with the church bells. This terror that you describe builds and builds over the course of the 1790s until at some point a group of civic leaders get together and say, we have to do something. And what is it that they propose to do and where do they propose to do it? So the city decided that it needed a new, stricter quarantine farther away from the city at a place where access could be easily policed. And that's where they built the new, bigger, ideally better Lazaretto with its strict quarantine. Describe for folks how this worked. There's a big hospital, more or less, on the banks of the Delaware River. Right. If I am the captain of a ship coming up to the port of Philadelphia, I've got to stop here? You're required by law to stop and await inspection. The Lazaretto physician interviews the captain while the quarantine master inspects the ship and the cargo. He needs to make a call on the spot, allow the ship to proceed if there are no warning signs. It could detain any combination of the vessel itself, the cargo, and the crew and passengers. Theoretically, how was this supposed to stop the spread of this terrible disease, yellow fever? There were those who believed that yellow fever was contagious, i.e. spread from person to person through contact, and that it was imported into Philadelphia from seaports in the West Indies where yellow fever was more or less endemic. So that's one camp. The other camp is the localists or the anti-contagionists who said, no, 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 it's not contagious. It originates locally in accumulations of filth and decaying organic matter under certain weather conditions, especially hot and wet weather. So to them, quarantine is makes no sense. A waste of time and money. At the time this thing gets built, the medical community is fractured, and there are very prominent people, including Benjamin Rush, mm-hmm. who don't think quarantine has any value, right? So it's amazing to me that it actually gets built in that environment. Well, it's um, testimony to the desperation. Some people were doubting whether Philadelphia could survive as a city. So or a whether... lot of people are just like, we'll try anything. They... We've got to do something. We've got to do something, and it's got to be big, and it's got to be publicly visible, and it's our statement of determination and defiance. In the 95 summers that the Lazaretto exists, the prevalence of yellow fever does go down. I feel you resisting this question in the book, but of course, you ask yourself, well, did it work? That's the big question, and ultimately, I believe quarantine probably did work. It was successful in bringing the various elements of the city and its population together in determination to beat back this scourge of yellow fever. It and was galvanizing. It was galvanizing. It it proclaimed the city's determination in a very public way every day. It was kind of a, a theater of vigilance. So it worked on that level, but that doesn't mean that it actually succeeded in preventing yellow fever. Right. That way you got to get to the science. Yes. And outbreaks of yellow fever can only happen when a whole bunch of different ingredients are present in the same place at the same time. It has to be 
a very crowded population of susceptible humans and the mosquito this particular mosquito has to be present in sufficient numbers weather conditions have to be just right and the systematic detention of certain vessels especially those coming from the West Indies and areas where yellow fever was more common must have reduced the number of opportunities for an outbreak to occur. Neither camp is really right and neither camp is really wrong. You write in the book, if a future historian were to try to tell the story of our lives from the perspective of a worldview that hasn't been dreamed of yet, would that history tell the truth? And that quote makes me, of course, think of what are the medical debates today where both sides are wrong? Absolutely. And it's I try this thought experiment with my students all the time. You know, uh, future historians are going to look back at our medicine today, which we think of as state of the art, cutting edge. And they're going to say how stupid they were. <laughs> all their theories of they're going to look at our lazarettos. Yeah. And they're going to say, oh, genetics, how quaint. Or yeah. I don't know. It might not be <laughs> genetics, it, you know, but. Um, yeah, how dare you impugn genetics? Genetics will stand the test of time. <laughs> it will be, but it will be something. There will be there will yeah. be important parts of early twenty first century medicine that will seem hopelessly backward. You can't say anything meaningful about our world and our lives today if you're judging from uh, a standard that doesn't exist today. The Lazaretto existing for 95 years just seems so improbable when you read about its beginnings. Um, and that, to me, was actually kind of hopeful, even if it didn't totally work the way it was supposed to work. There is something hopeful just in its maintenance and existence. I agree with you, Avi, that it's, it's a hopeful sign that we are capable of surviving even through deep divisions and through times of crisis when it seems like, you know, all hope may be lost. David Barnes is the author of Lazaretto, How Philadelphia Used an Unpopular Quarantine Based on Disputed Science to Accommodate Immigrants and Prevent Epidemics. David Barnes, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Avi. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you to Avi for sharing this story with us. Well, that is it for Studio 2 today. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray-Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks is our engineer. Thank you so much to Shirley Mann for stepping into Avi's shoes today. And for more of our show, you can head on over to whyy.org slash Studio 2 or download us wherever you get your pods. From Studio 2 at WHYY in Philly, I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Shirley Mann. Thanks for joining us.